Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Through a Pocket Lens, written by Henry Sharon and published in 1897. This book looks at the pocket lens and the microscope. It's fascinating to think how long these tools have existed, but also about how far we have come. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a huge thank you to two new supporters during the week. Thank you to Gina Burney for supporting the show with a $5 monthly contribution on Patreon. And thank you also to Michelle Hicks for becoming a supporter on Anchor with a $5 monthly contribution. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review during the week. Rachel Kuo and MNBFDJKMVDF. Thank you to each for your lovely reviews on iTunes. Thank you to VV for your review on Podcast Republic and to Bella Runs for your lovely comment and post on Instagram. Best of luck with your upcoming marathon. I am honoured to be a part of the preparation that you are undertaking in the lead up to it. And finally, thank you to Asa Berkulis from Sweden. I'm so glad the podcast helps you empty your mind at the right time of the day. As always, I am extremely grateful to all the patrons, supporters and anchor sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, your contribution allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Through a Pocket Lens, Chapter 1 The Pocket Lens, the Dissecting Microscope, and Some Simple Appliances The object of this little book is to show how much may be seen with an ordinary pocket lens and with a simple microscope, and as far as possible, to dispel the idea, far too common especially among beginners, that no real work can be done unless one has a compound microscope 
with a large battery of lenses and an array of accessories. It would be easy to multiply quotations from high authorities in support of the proposition implied in the foregoing paragraph. Two only must suffice. In a recent review of a very good book dealing with butterflies and moths, Natural Science, Volume 4, page 293, the following passage occurs. The only suggestion we should like to make is that a compound microscope is unnecessary for any of the details that the author mentions. A first-rate platoscopic hand lens is much more convenient, and the young naturalist should train himself thoroughly in the use of it. There is no more common error than the undue use of the higher powers of a microscope, except for the intimate details of histology, a low power or a hand lens is much more easy to use, and its employment gives a much better idea of the structure. The next quotation is of greater interest, as it gives some insight into the way in which Darwin carried on his investigations. In the life and letters of Charles Darwin, we are told, his natural tendency was to use simple methods and few instruments. The use of the compound microscope has much increased since his youth, and this at the expense of the simple one. It strikes us nowadays as extraordinary that he should have had no compound microscope when he went his beagle voyage, but in this he followed the advice of Robert Brown, who was an authority in such matters. He always had a great liking for the simple microscope and maintained that nowadays it was too much neglected and that one ought always to see as much as possible with the simple before taking to the compound microscope. In one of his letters, he speaks on this point, and remarks that he always suspects the work of a man who never uses the simple microscope. It may be well here to verify the quotations, and also to consult Darwin's naturalist voyage to ascertain what kind of objects he examined with the simple appliances at his command. In the first chapter, there is an interesting account of a curious limey deposit on the rocks of the island of St. Paul's and of the discoloration of confervae of the water which under a weak lens seemed as if covered by chopped bits of hay with their ends jagged. Then we have an account of the confervae in the Indian Ocean, and of infusuria so numerous as to tinge the water off the coast of Chile. In the second chapter, we have observations and experiments on planarium worms, having cut one of them transversely into two nearly equal parts in the course of a fortnight 
both had the shape of perfect animals. In the next chapter, he records some observations on the structure of vitrified tubes formed by lightning striking loose sand. In the fifth chapter is an elaborate description of a kind of sea pen, and in the ninth chapter there are some remarks on the vast number of eggs in the egg ribbon of a sea slug, and on the bird's head organs in certain polyzoia. These remarks were, of course, founded on actual inspection with the simple microscope. To this instrument also, we owe the discovery of the tadpole-like larvae of ascidians or tunicates, as they are now generally called. At the Falkland Islands, I had the satisfaction of seeing, in April 1833, and therefore some years before any other naturalist, the locomotive larvae of a compound ascidian. The tail was about five times as long as the oblong head, and terminated in a very fine filament. It was as sketched by me under a simple microscope, plainly divided by transverse, opaque partitions, which I presume represent the great cells figured by Kovalevsky. At an early stage of development, the tail was closely coiled around the head of the lava. We come now to our pocket lens, which may be purchased for a few shillings of any optician. One can buy a serviceable single lens in an ebonite handle, for a shilling, and this cheap instrument is sufficiently powerful not only to give the worker a good general idea of the form and structure of objects, but to enable him to do real work. With it the habits of many of the inmates of his aquaria may conveniently be watched he may see their development from stage to stage of their life history, and with it, when they are broken up, he may take out a good deal of their external and internal anatomy. A very good form is shown here, which represents a hand magnifier, fitted with three lenses of different focus, generally two and one-half inches, and one inch. Examination of the catalogues of the principal London opticians shows that such a set of lenses may be bought for about three pence. In shape and construction, there is sometimes a little variation, but the form figured is that most generally adopted and is on the whole fairly convenient. It would, however, be an advantage if the hole by which the magnifier is mounted on the stand were drilled in the solid part of the handle. This would not only do away with the objection that the hole in the case permits dust to penetrate to the glasses when carried in the pocket, but would give a longer reach and thus obviate the necessity for moving the stand 
if the observer were examining a large object. The price of the stand figured is two pence, and one with a short adjusting arm ought not to cost much more. Anyone with a mechanical turn may make a stand for himself, though it may be doubted whether this is quite worthwhile when these articles may be bought so cheaply. Nevertheless, there is great pleasure in making things for oneself, and a homemade stand will enable the observer to do quite as good work as one that came from the optician's shop. A bill fire weighted at the foot may be bought for a few pence, and adapted to the purpose. For the slider, a large cork cleanly pierced will answer admirably. This should carry a piece of stout wire bent at the end to serve as a holder for the magnifier, which should have a hole in the handle for the reasons stated above. The only difficulty will be when the attachment of the wire to the cork becomes a problem. The Reverend J.G. Wood advocated winding the wire around the cork in a spiral, and this is a very good plan. An increase of steadiness is secured if a larger cork or small bung be used, and the wire inserted in the side. There are, of course, more expensive lenses, with which better definition can be obtained. Zeiss has an excellent magnifier consisting of two lenses, for use in the dissecting microscope, and also has a hand lens at the price of six cents, one of the same construction for use in the dissecting microscope alone may be had for four cents. The Steinhill achromatic lenses are probably the best of all. These are made in powers ranging from two inches to half an inch in focus, and the price varies from ten cents up to one pound, according to the maker. Those made of Lights and Wetzler cannot be surpassed, and they are sold in London at ten cents each, either mounted in a handle for use as magnifiers or with a collar for use in Lights's dissecting microscope. Mr. Lewis Wright says that the best plan is to combine both uses and have two or three powers in collars with a spring ring folding into a handle, which will carry any one of them in it as the manner. A Steinhill lens at this low price costs little more than a Coddington, while its performance is infinitely superior. It is a difficult thing to get makers to deviate from the beaten track, and so far as I have been able to learn, Mr. Wright's wishes have not been fulfilled. The lenses and stand constitute a simple form of dissecting microscope, 
If the worker wishes for something more elaborate, he need only consult the catalogues of the principal makers to find something that will meet his requirements. Zeiss's brass stand with stage, above which a lens slides up and down in a holder, is sold for nine cents with blocks for supporting the hands at ten cents. It is a useful instrument for small objects. My favourite instrument is Leitz's dissecting microscope. Here the focusing of the lens is affected by rack and pinion work. By means of the screws on each side of the upright pillar, the lens is shown fitted in the collar which carries it. The stage is of glass, roughly two and a half inches long by two inches wide, and the arm at the top of the pillar can be moved from side to side, so as to bring a fairly large object within range. The metal framework of the stage is furnished with nickeled clips, which serve to hold an excavated slip. The armrests are detachable, and the uprights are hinged for convenience of packing. The instrument, with the exception of these rests, packs into a neat, strong mahogany box, seven and a half inches in length, and about five inches in height and width, with two powers, one inch and one half inch are very serviceable ones. The cost is 38 cents. It is to be wished that the maker would devise some plan by which the admirable lenses sold with this instrument could be utilised for the pocket. Mr. C. Curtis of Baker & Co., High Holborn, has kindly done something in the matter and has made for me a metal holder. I have found this convenient, but should be glad to see something further done in the same direction, so that instrument, lenses and holder could be sold for two pounds. This ought to be within the range of practical optics, the spring collar advocated by my friend Mr. Wright seems better and would certainly be cheaper. The lenses would only need to be dropped in. To use my pocket holder, one must unscrew the metal collar from the lenses before screwing them into the metal plates which carry them. It is, however, something to have made a beginning. It is a step in the right direction. A serviceable dissecting microscope, not a toy, but an instrument with which real work may be done, can be made at a cost of a few shillings. Such a one has been made for me by a friend with a positive genius for such work. The body is fashioned out of a parcel box seven inches long, three and a half inches in height, and the same in width. From the centre of the sliding top, a piece is cut away 
leaving ledges to take a three inch by one inch excavated slip for small dissections or a mounted slide of a large object, such as a whole insect for examination. A further portion is cut away on each side to take a small dissecting dish. To admit the light, a hole is cut in the side of the box, and the mirror consists of a piece of silvered glass which is bought of a hawker in the street. This is placed in the box opposite the square hole and sloped at an angle of 45 degrees. The aid of a skilled mechanic was sought for a small rod carrying a thread, which works in a piece of brass bent at a right angle. This piece of brass is screwed on the box, just above the aperture by which light is admitted, and carries a pocket magnifier similar to that shown in figure one. This modest little instrument generally stands on my work table and has provoked some remark and a little good-natured banter from friends who have seen it. Nevertheless, I should be sorry to part with it, for I have found it extremely serviceable in many ways and more than one critic has had to confess that better results were obtained than one would expect from its appearance. The total cost out of pocket was three pence, for the box three cents for the lens, and one pence for the plate glass, while the man who made the pillar and earpiece would take no more than six cents for his work. This brings the total to three cents. Other apparatus need not be costly. An incident occurred at the meeting of the Quicket Microscopical Club on November 22, 1878, which shows how readily common objects may be utilised for our purpose. The late Right Honourable T.H. Huxley who was at the time president, exhibited and made some remarks on the dissecting microscope, which now bears his name. During the discussion which followed, Professor Charles Stewart exhibited some little sources which were admirably adapted for dissecting purposes. The president said that he should be glad to know where these convenient little sources could be obtained. The next paragraph of the minutes is interesting and instructive. Mr. Stewart said they were to be found at the corners of the streets, containing three whelks or three mussels for a penny. He bought those he had brought to the meeting at a shop in the New Cut, where they were supplied to costermongers. As very many of the objects with which we are concerned are aquatic, we shall want vessels of some sort to serve as aquaria. Any glass vessel will answer our purpose, provided it is clear 
to allow the examination of our captives, or shallow pie dishes may be utilised. The glass pots in which preserves are sold will do admirably, and any glazier will cut us covers for a few pence. Within reasonable limits, the smaller the aquaria are the better. The inmates can be seen more easily, and picked out with less trouble when one wishes to examine them. The principles on which aquaria should be kept are now pretty generally understood. There should always be a small quantity of growing aquatic vegetation and a supply of minute life to furnish food for the larger forms. Excess of light should be avoided and the temperature should not be allowed to rise as much above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Carnivorous beetles and their larvae may be fed with small pieces of meat, small garden worms or tadpoles. Most of the smaller larvae treated of will be satisfied with vegetarian diet, varied with an occasional meal of water fleas. If one cannot lay the household stores under contribution for jam pots, tumblers and bottles, beakers make capital small aquaria. They are sold in nests and may be had either rimmed or lipped, rimmed for choice. There is no difficulty in obtaining them of any optician or glass merchant. Mine have been bought from Messrs. Beck of Cornhill, as have the capsules and figured here. Glass capsules are made in different sizes, ranging from 1 inch to 3 inches in diameter, with a height of 1 inch or 2 inches. The largest size, 3 inches by 2 inch, cost 5 cents and a glass circle to cover it is one cent. These capsules will be found useful for small aquaria and for isolating aquatic larvae in order to keep them under observation during their change to perfect insects. It was in a capsule of this kind that some of my cytoperia larvae were kept and changed into the pupil condition. The glass block with cover is convenient for a number of purposes. In it, small creatures may be examined in air or in water, and it makes an exceedingly convenient little dissecting dish for use with a mounted hand magnifier, or with lights as stand, or the homemade stand. The glass box with cover is extremely good for keeping small creatures under observation. Excavated glass slips, 3 inches by 1 inch, may be bought from any optician. They serve for the examination of objects in water and also for dissection. The best I have been able to get have been supplied by Mr. J. Hornell of the Biological Laboratory in Jersey, and they are very cheap. 
we shall need some forceps to pick up specimens from the vessels in which they are kept, and the same little instruments will be found convenient in collecting. Both forms have advantages of their own. If we are limited to one pair, they should be curved and of brass. Forceps with ivory tips are very useful for handling aquatic vegetation. These articles are not usually sold by opticians, but are kept by the tradesmen in Clerkenwell, who sell jewellers and watchmakers tools. Dipping tubes are used to take up small aquatic animals from the vessels in which they are kept. Very little practice will render the use of this instrument easy. The tube is held firmly between the thumb and the third and fourth fingers of either hand, while the index finger is pressed firmly on the top. Most people naturally prefer the right hand, but it is well to accustom oneself to use the right or left indifferently. The open end is then put into the water, just over the object to be secured, and the index finger lifted. The rush of water into the tube will carry the object into it, and if the finger be again applied to the top, the pressure of the atmosphere will prevent the water from escaping when the tube is lifted out. Some small brushes are useful for taking up specimens from the water or from pickle. Common ones will do very well for large objects, but for small objects and parts it is advisable to have one or two sable brushes as these form a better point. Some needles fixed in handles will also be necessary these may be bought or made by fixing ordinary needles of requisite sizes into the handles sold for small brushes. The needles must be kept free from rust and should always be carefully wiped after use. A good plan to keep them clean is to stick them in a galley pot in which has been melted a mixture of lard and paraffin in equal proportions. Small dissecting knives are useful, but all the work described here may be done with an ordinary pocket knife in good trim. The best preservative for our purpose is formalin, which is sold in a 40% solution. This should be treated as absolute and a 5% solution made. This will really be a 2% solution and is sufficiently strong for general use. The most profitable use we can make of specimens is to watch their habits while living, and to break them up and learn as much as we can about their structure. Little need be said about collecting. The objects treated of are so plentiful that no great skill nor any wealth of appliances is needed to secure an ample supply. The following remarks on the methods employed at the Illinois State Laboratory for the capture of aquatic insects and larvae are 
however worth quoting. Insects in vegetation and or on the bottom were taken by means of a dip net, a net of equal depth and width attached to a strong semicircular ring, firmly fixed to a long handle, the straight side of the ring being opposite the point of attachment. For the larger and more active forms, a coarser net was used, and for smaller forms, one made of finer net proved most durable and satisfactory. To collect from the mud of the bottom, the water immediately over it was violently stirred and then swept with the net. The surface layer of mud was also scooped up in the fine dip net, and then allowed to wash through, leaving the coarser contents in the net. Insects on the bottom in deep water were secured by using a dredge, and washing its contents through net sieves. The aquatic vegetation, when free of mud, was violently washed in a large pan, many smaller forms being thus dislodged and coming to the surface. Insects occurring in open water were taken in drawing an ordinary towing net. Here we have, so as to speak, the general principles of collecting. It will be easy to adapt them to particular cases. In choosing the subjects to be treated of in this little book, some difficulty has been experienced in deciding what to select from the multitude that lay ready to hand. It was felt necessary that the subjects should be connected, since choosing them at random would lead to purposeless work, and so to waste of a time and opportunity. After some consideration, the author has decided to take all the examples from the Athrodopa, that great sub-kingdom of backboneless animals which includes the lobster, the crab, the sandhopper, and the woodlouse, the spider, and the mite, the whole world of insects and the centipedes. One cogent reason that influenced this decision was the fact that these objects are exceedingly common, so that there can be no difficulty in procuring material on which to work. There is perhaps no other sub-kingdom so full of interest, on account of the many widely different forms, which may be referred to one common plan. It may possibly appear to some readers that the powers of the pocket lens have been exaggerated. As a matter of fact, the material for the book has been gathered by actual observation. The author has seen, with an ordinary pocket lens, the objects here described. If some are shown as they would appear under greater magnification than such a lens would give, this is chiefly for the sake of emphasising points of interest which might otherwise be overlooked. 
but which can readily be made out with a hand magnifier when the tension has been drawn to them and the observer knows what to look for. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the stories about the microscope and the magnifier. I also hope you are feeling a little tired and ready to fall asleep. Until next time, good night.